0: Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. My name is Jeff and I'm joined as always by my good friends Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. Richard and Michael like to discuss the Mount Rushmore of any given topic and this week is no different as they debate and deliberate the Mount Rushmore of character makeup in movies. And we have a special guest, a very good friend of mine who I know from a fitness endeavor that we're both involved with, but... Usually when we're doing that fitness endeavor, CrossFit, uh, yes, I got that in there, Uh, I ask him about his career, which is, uh, could you describe it, special guest Dan Crawley?
1: Uh, Yeah, so I guess the best way to describe it, uh, when I just say special effects, people immediately like, oh, so like computers, it's it's the opposite. So I do, I guess what you would consider practical effects, meaning um, any kind of special effects that are not in a computer – so, something that you make for real, uh, you sculpt it, you paint it, you mold it, so uh, makeup effects and prosthetics, costumes, specialty costumes, um, animatronics, and uh, that those are the type of things that I do. I guess anything you make for real i've seen dan 's portfolio
0: or at least a portion of it, and these are the tentpole feature films that uh, have huge budgets and have huge iconic characters. Dan, are you at liberty to discuss? the productions you worked on in the past or should we just say that it's all the, all the yeah, big I mean, things?
1: Like, uh, yeah, I mean, of course yeah, I'm happy to, so I guess the first, the first decade or so of my career was much more makeup centric. I was doing a lot more, um, you know, uh, well, character makeups, as is the the topic of tonight's podcast um, prosthetics, things like that. But the last decade uh, has been a lot more specialty costumes. So superhero suits, Armor, spacesuits, things like that. Um, Some films off the top of my head is, I guess, the majority of the Marvel movies I worked on. Uh, Also uh, did, like, Superman and Aquaman's costumes for Batman vs. Superman. Did all of Deadpool and Cable's costumes for both the Deadpool films. Did uh, all of the J.J. Abrams' uh, Star Star Trek films, like all the uh, spacesuits, volcano suits uh, for those. Um... What else? I guess the most, the two most recent things would be probably Captain Marvel. Did all the costumes for that and Shazam. And I should say, when I say did all the costumes, I should, I, this was not a single-handed effort. I was obviously part of a big crew of people who worked in these things. Um, but those are, I guess, uh, a couple of the highlights uh, from recent times.
2: I love, cool. I love that um, you did both sides of the Captain Marvel Shazam coin.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, so it was very bizarre. So we we, we did Captain Marvel and Shazam. At exactly the same time it's one of the busiest periods i've ever had in cool. 20 years of my business so we were simultaneously making 13 costumes because there were seven characters for captain marvel and six for shazam but as you guys are knowing i think you're alluding to is that um captain marvel and shazam those names are a little bit interchangeable right kind of uh, very confusing um so yeah that got very confusing when we were working on the movie where um uh, Shazam's name was also Captain Marvel at one point. So uh, it got real, real tricky there uh, at, at times, but uh, it was a very, very busy, crazy time for sure.
0: Okay. So cool. Why don't we just jump into the game and I have some things I want to talk to uh, Dan or ask Dan and I'm sure Michael and Richard do uh, regarding uh, character makeups and the what's and the why's and how people who are in that career think about them. But I figure we might as well jump, jump in. So Dan, uh, our visitor goes first here on the Mount Rushmore podcast, so you're going to start us off with your first choice.
1: Can I can I defer to you guys going first only because I I think there's going to be some overlap, and I'd rather let you guys probably are going to go for the more well-known ones, and then it gives me an opportunity to maybe point out some of the more obscure ones that people wouldn't think about rather than just retreading the same territory that you guys are
2: probably. what what a balls what an incredibly ballsy move and the first time that it's ever happened on the 200 plus episodes of matt rushmore I love and it. I, I applaud it jeff yeah, is jeff that. is the jeff is the uh judge so he has the final arbitration but what
0: absolutely uh um you guys uh you're gonna need it i think you're gonna need your head start
2: okay well then i guess we'll go first and i'll go first and um our first choice is um frankenstein's monster makeup uh as done by uh Jack Pierce in the 1931 movie Frankenstein. And I think I personally chose this because I can't think of a more um, recognizable piece of makeup that has also um, completely affected the way that a character has been seen for forever. Like the Boris Karloff, James Whale, Jack Pierce, makeup collaboration has created just this iconography of what this one specific character looked like and has always looked like in your head like he is as ubiquitous as like uh you know abraham lincoln like anytime a frankenstein monster comes out you know albeit uh without the uh Oh, what was the 90s Frankenstein movie with? Uh,
1: De Niro? With Kenneth De Niro.
2: Yeah, yeah. the Kenneth Braun Frankenstein. Like every other version of Frankenstein has kind of fallen into this mold with the flat top and the bolts and the kind of green pallor skin and the stitches. And, you know, whether it's Herman Munster or Frankenstein's monster from Monster Squad or like Mad Monster Party, like Frankenstein's monster is this iconic creation and um he's so recognizable and it all comes down to the makeup and the look and the design and um i was reading a uh you know an interview with um pierce did like way back in like 1967 where he talked about how uh frankenstein as a creator kind of half-assed his way through like the process of building the monster and like their idea of him was that like, yeah, he's just going to like do these really hard stitches. He's not going to take a lot of care. He just kind of wants to get to his big idea. And so their movie version of him is very gruesome and morbid. While like the book version of him, he's like kind of just well this well put together man. And you don't think of that with Frankenstein. You don't think of a character that's just like this huge bodybuilder guy that they reanimated you think of this guy that's been put back together from all these different pieces and i think that that image has just so affected the last you know 100 years of movie making and 100 years of a character that's 200 years old
0: oh yeah very indelible that uh, jack pierce version um i will also say that uh um dan crawley in his appreciation for some of these uh, characters has gone so far as to indelibly ink them onto his body. Uh, The Basil Gagos famous monsters of film land.
3: Yeah.
1: (laughs) There's there's your Frankenstein. Oh, there you
2: go. That's so funny. Uh, uh, (laughs) You know, I I also have a uh, green tattoo, but it is um, a -a Moonanite. From aqua Teen Hunger Force, so you uh, know, slightly very similar sort of similar, similar sense of, of iconography, force, I would say, yeah, square as well. But, Dan, are you familiar
0: with the Jack Pierce? Uh... <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I mean, so obviously, like, this is exactly why I wanted to kind of defer because there's the big ones, right? And so that was certainly got to be the top list. Jack Pierce, I mean, revolutionized makeup, and uh, he was the first ever department head for a studio at universal um, he designed that look along with boris karloff but a lot of those things that you talked about never had happened before but always happened since the flat top the specifically the scar on the one side of the forehead and the bolts and those things are actually owned by universal studios so you specifically can't have a flat topped frankenstein you cannot have that one lightning bolt scar on the forehead or the neck lightning bolts, which is why in other iterations, unless they got permission from Universal, you had to change it up. So like in Monster Squad that you mentioned, they moved the electrodes to his forehead because they hmm. couldn't have him on the neck by law. So uh, That's so know. funny. Yeah, and and the flat top, Jack Pierce, his idea was like, oh, he just saw the top off and opened it up like a flat put the brain in and put it back on top without putting the skull cap back on. So that was his thought behind why he had a flat top to his head uh, in his haste so yeah absolutely iconic uh makeup jack pierce created i mean every iconic look for the classic universal monsters that we all look at today they haven't changed those were all his designs you know from that kind of gold age of the 20s to the like really the late 40s so
2: even frankenberry I, think- I mean
1: yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's pulled it off he's pulled it off too
1: All right, uh, Dan, hit us with your first choice. Okay, uh, for my first choice, I'm going to, uh, we're going to go to the 70s, and I'm going to start with the, uh, from The Exorcist, but not what you may think. I'm going to go with Father Marin from The Exorcist. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that makeup done by Dick Smith, obviously legendary makeup artist. Uh, What many people don't realize is that Uh, the actor, it was slipped my mind at the moment. Uh, Is it Max
0: uh, von Sydow?
1: Yeah, there we go, Max von Sydow, right? So he was a guy in his early 40s at that time. But in the film, obviously, he looks like he was in his late 60s. And that was just a very, you know, expertly crafted, um, very subtle character and aging makeup to the point where many people didn't realize he was in a makeup and that he was a young man, like, people thought that was just an old guy that was cast um, in that role. And even today, I don't think people realize when you saw him, when he actually got to that age, you don't realize how, how different he actually looked back then. So um, that was, uh, I, I really admire to me, what sets apart a great character makeup isn't something that's jumps out at you as like, Oh, this is obviously a makeup. It's the stuff that is done and crafted so well that, you don't even realize that somebody's wearing a makeup, right? You're just changing a nose or a chin line or even something as simple as a, as a a well done bald cap or a wig to create a character. Um, People don't see monsters every day so you can make anything you want and be like, yeah, that looks like a monster, but people know what an old man looks like or a fat lady or they know, you know what I mean? So if you do a makeup that's transforming somebody in that sense, People have something in real life to compare it to, and even an amateur can be like, "That looks good" or "That's not real," you know.
2: So there's I really definitely like there's definitely like this uncanny valley when you look at um, a younger person wearing older makeup, and it happens like in the eyes. Like I remember seeing uh, Prometheus uh, and Guy uh, Pierce, yeah. uh, you know, is uh, he plays an older version of himself? Yeah, that's a great. And makeup. you and you look at him, and he looks old he looks like an old an old man but you you look at the eyes and there's like a youth to it and like a vitality to it and then i was thinking of how well they did the old man makeup in uh the last avengers movie uh end game and uh 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 what's, what's his evans? name chris chris evans like they really focused on like the 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 age on his face, but also the age like within the eyes itself. And maybe that was done probably digitally.
1: Well, so but, like, that was, it's, it was a, mix yeah.
2: Yeah. But like, it was, it's uh... it's amazing to see like how, you know, you can, the, the makeup really takes effect. But if, if you don't get every aspect, right, there's a, something that you're just watching and you're just like, it's close. Just like you said, just like the, uh, you know what an old person looks like. And if, you know, you can compare it from a monster, like, I think that's really that's really informative I think that's it's really almost, interesting.
3: It's almost an uncanny valley situation. Mm. Except except not with robots but obviously with transforming a person to look older or whatever the transformation that you're looking for. There's something there where it, if it's not done right it almost it almost looks right but like you said Michael there's something that's a little bit off.
1: Yeah, even something like even something like, uh, hopefully I'm not stepping on anything that's to come, but like even, even same, same makeup artist, Dick Smith, same arrow. Uh, you think about Marlon Brando and the Godfather and it was just a subtle, uh, aging makeup, but you know, just, just beautifully done. And uh, it didn't have to be an over the top prosthetic, but both of those makeups were just done with, you know, simple stretch and stipple techniques and just things like dental plumpers or, you know, just to distort the, the, the look of the jaw or, right. um, you know, you could do something as subtle as just changing the, the flare of the nostril. Uh, they, uh, recently in, uh, that movie, it just came out 2019 bombshell Charlize Theron played Megan Kelly yeah. and they 3d printed Kazu, uh, amazing makeup artist Kazu Chushi. He, he 3d printed these little implant things that she put up in her nostrils just to change the shape of her nostril with no prosthetics, no makeup at all, but it completely changes the look of somebody's face. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of innovation and creativity that's, you know, really amazing to me.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating to, to understand the partnership between the, uh, the performer and their ability to partner with the makeup artist in the performance. So as long as that, uh, partnership is there, it seems like it could be a wonderful thing, but, uh, it's, in some makeup circumstance, it sounds like it seems like the person is burying the actor under a big pile of things that take away right. their, their tools to perform.
2: It's funny in my head. Max Fansido has always been a hundred years old.
0: <laughs> oh yeah,
2: <laughs> like and when, whenever I think of him, he's like, oh yeah, he's perpetually seventy and has always been seventy. He's yeah,
0: uh, he's, like, what's Robert his name? Ridley. Yeah, what's his name? Aging <laughs> backwards
2: in and, and Morgan Mindy,
0: uh, mirth. Mirth, they're Jonathan Winters. So, so let's uh, go with Richard and Michael's second choice.
3: Okay, so for our second choice, we're going with, as you said, something that you see every day, a very common thing, which is humanoid chimpanzees and apes. Um, I'm, of course, talking about the uh, makeup work for the original Planet of the Apes, uh, done by the uh, legendary John Chambers. And uh, several reasons for choosing this. I think for me, personally, I, I think, Jeff, we've talked about this on the show I think I, I know I grew up watching the Planet of the Apes movies on the Independence Station where I grew up and I think you might have mentioned that you did as well and I think what's amazing about the makeup that was done for the planet especially the original Planet of the Apes movie um, was just the, the, the ability to be able to apply this very high level of prosthetics but also allow these actors to be able to emote and to be able to show emotion and to be able to actually act with yeah. these prosthetics, which I think is something that was really unique for the time and maybe just about one of the first times that, that this actually happened. I know doing a little bit of research, the studio actually wanted to just hire stunt people to play the roles of the apes with their thinking being, well, they're just going to be buried under makeup. What's the difference? And you know they quite rightfully were convinced that no we can do this makeup in a way so that these characters can actually come to life and the actors are going to be able to to emote and to show emotions and actually you can see their performances um obviously a a landmark in um just in makeup work uh, john chambers won a special academy award in 1969 for the makeup um, one of the things, if, if we're talking about a specific character, I'd talk about specifically Dr. Zayus, obviously, one of the main characters, um, which I didn't realize was originally uh, cast as Edward G. Robinson. Oh, yeah. And he got made it through the screen test. Everything looked great. And then they told him how many hours a day he would have to sit in makeup <laughs> to be able to do the role. And he basically said, yeah, I'm out of here. <laughs> So yeah, I think it's it's in terms of iconic makeup, you know, there, it's it's one of those I think creations that you uh, that you automatically can look at and you know exactly you know exactly what that is. It's sort of like the like you mentioned, Michael, with the uh, with the uh, the Frankenstein's monster. I think it's definitely become a template for how other character driven and practical effect driven characters have been created in the movies
2: well correct me correct me if i'm wrong too but i believe that charlton heston was that character was actually a, a chimpanzee in a man costume yeah. so did i read well, is that did i read yeah, that right
3: yeah charlton anybody heston is, charlton heston is actually a chimpanzee
2: okay okay
0: i
3: thought <laughs> that's what you're i thinking. thought that's right yeah okay
0: I feel that that film and the makeup therein has gotten its uh, uh, due with that doc that was released, I think, last year. So it was very cool to see how much light was shown on that. That's Making Apes, is that the yes. one? Yes.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, so special shout-out should to go to Tom Berman, uh, who I believe is the one, he's the feature of Making Apes. But uh, Tom Berman, you know, was a young apprentice at the time, but he, he really had a big hand in creating all those makeups along with John Chambers and went largely uncredited, but that documentary covers a lot of that ground. So
3: yeah, definitely check that documentary out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that the movie had a $6 million budget and a million dollars of that budget was for makeup, I think goes a long Unheard way. Of. Tell- yeah. yeah un- <laughs> ridiculous. But for the time, ridiculous.
0: That's an interesting, uh, reversal of the, the role that, uh, makeup plays in fantasy and, uh, sci-fi, uh, films uh sometimes we're taking a person and um uh we're trying to make a creature trying to make you believe that a person is some kind of uh otherworldly type of creature a fantasy character and in apes we are taking a animal that people may be familiar with uh from seeing nature documentaries or in the zoo and giving them every human attribute that they can so we're kind of making uh, creatures human in that case. And if you did not believe them, then the audience would not be invested in that uh, film for sure. And some especially
1: of the main characters.
3: Yeah, and and especially when you consider that some of the original designs had the, uh, the apes be more ape-like. And it really was through sort of my understanding, at least sort of the process of, of planning for the movie that they came to realize that it would be a it would be better if you actually had them be more of a a humanoid ape hybrid, which I think for the for the movie and and being able to empathize with some of these the the ape characters I think was absolutely necessary.
1: Okay Dan what's your second choice? Alright for my second choice I'm going to go with a more recent film, I believe '94. Uh I'm gonna go with Martin Landau uh, as Bela Gossi in Ed I love it. I love it. <laughs> so uh, this one is not only a great subtle character makeup like I discussed in my last pick, but adding another layer to it of difficulty, it's uh, a makeup that is a likeness makeup. And this is one of the most challenging things that you can do as a makeup artist is try to make somebody look like somebody else, especially when that somebody else is somebody that you know. Uh, and everybody knows what they look like, and I can tell you that you could not have two people who look more different than Martin Landau and Bale Lugosi. <laughs> so that was quite the challenge uh, uh, for Rick Baker, uh, another legendary makeup artist, to, to tackle. Um, and for many reasons, that that makeup's incredible and that movie's incredible. I think probably overlooked a little bit, but I, I think it may be honestly Tim Burton's. Certainly I would say it's the closest thing to like a, a regular, maybe like a regular movie, but still with that quirk, but uh, just a beautiful film and, and an amazing makeup. And what what the the likeness may have lacked because of the, how different they looked, Martin Lando made up for, I believe, with his performance. Um, so, I, you know, I love that makeup. I think it's a, a real standout uh, in Rick Baker's, you know, long and uh, – storied career so that that is my second pick now rick baker's known for what i mean everything i I would say the biggest thing he's known for thriller right he Mm -hmm. did thriller he did uh, american werewolf in london those were like the two kind of big ones from back in the day but then he also did harry and the hendersons the grinch he did the tim burton planet of the apes uh he did the nutty professor um he's done i mean the, the list goes on he's done he's been in the business for you know mm-hmm. 40 years and he actually last year he had these two volumes come out almost 800 pages a retrospective of his entire life's work so um yeah i mean he's yeah he's uh, uh, done done it all i
0: mean uh there if you were to ask kind of earlier on you kind of alluded to how makeup uh, artists or how people who design these uh, character effects view that that view their part of the process do you think they consider themselves or do you consider yourself when you're operating in that function a storyteller a performer um a designer uh, all of the above what what do they see Um, how do they see their role
1: yeah i mean maybe a little bit of everything but i think that the biggest thing is that uh it's your job to kind of help be a conduit for the performer the actor to embody the role that they're playing um so it's a couple things like maybe that is helping them forget that they are who they are if you have a guy like Gary Oldman who is you know pretty method and needs to get lost in a makeup um and lost in a character to bring it out then that's your job to help them um sometimes a lot of actors will say like that they were having trouble finding a voice for a character or a facial expression and they couldn't f- quite figure it out but then they saw themselves in the mirror for the first time with in the makeup and then they knew right away like i knew what his voice was or i knew what this was and so i think that's a pretty magical moment but i, I think in a lot of cases um with some of the makeups i've been talking about your your job is to not be noticed right uh, if someone is noticing that someone's wearing a heavy makeup it's going to take them out of the film and even in something like planet of the apes like you mentioned it's about you have to believe these characters and live with them for two hours and be invested in their emotions. And if you're taken out of that by their makeup, then, uh, then I would say you're probably not doing your job as a makeup artist.
0: I would say I church think- Churchill, uh, as portrayed by Gary Oldman's a good example of what, uh, you described. They pretty much just believed he was, he was Winston Churchill the, the whole time. Yeah.
1: Or the, the Alfred Hitchcock makeup that was done on, uh, Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, another great one. You know, we're just, you didn't even know it was that person.
2: I think one thing that did help um, too with um, Ed Wood was you're so used to seeing Bela Lugosi in black and white. And the fact that that movie came out as well, just filmed in black and white, it helped kind of, um, kind of keep that, you know, that's an, an area of production that just it kind of helped keep it going forward. You know, Frankenstein as well as this green monster, you know, they had green makeup on him, but it was so that he popped more in black and white and looked even more ghoulish. And I think that like so much of that must play into it just, you know, the, from a filmmaking perspective of, you know, Bella Lugosi as this, purely black and white image you know his dracula is this black and white image or the black cat or whatever but like when you see him um uh and you see like uh, uh martin lando and that same thing it helps suck you into that like you don't you're not used to seeing bella lugosi as like a living breathing person you're used to seeing him as like this you know uh just this thing on cinema so i think you know that the combination of cinematography and the combination of makeup all of that goes into you know just this unifying image that the actor needed i'm sure once you see him if you saw him in color and then you saw him in black and white maybe it would be slightly different but i'm sure it all kind of plays together absolutely yeah
0: i think it was funny in that film we're not used to seeing uh we're not used to seeing Johnny Depp without a top hat and goggles and wolf ears
2: or <laughs> long fingers or something like that. We I mean, talk about talk about an actor, too. He, he as well is is one who is heavily up over the years, whether it's like yeah. as a pirate or uh, a scissor uh, hand. Again. Yeah. I mean, that's a guy. You know, it's funny. Uh, me and my wife, Emily, were talking um, earlier about uh, what would you pick? And she was just saying she's like, oh, man, just like. Danny DeVito as the penguin. Oh yeah. Was so wonderful this full body thing and like from stories that I've read about him he just loved he loved getting into the makeup and his character like you were saying like the character comes out of the makeup and he just loved being in that gr- I mean you know he's a little grotesque man in himself he's a <laughs> lovely person. I love Danny DeVito to bits but like you know within the penguin makeup he's just this grotesque you know sniveling uh, awful being but like you know it brings them out of it brings it out of you helps brings out the character
0: uh so show your character go online to facebook twitter instagram and make a suggestion for a topic that we could tackle here on the mount rushmore podcast we're in real time baby with this uh covid 19 we're just sitting around making podcasts so If you make a suggestion on one of these platforms of social media, you might find that we do it the next week. And then uh, you might find yourself uh, being pulled into duty as a co-host or a guest like uh, my friend Dan Crawley has, because we can Zoom you wherever you are. So just get in a dialogue with us on social media, suggest topics, suggest answers to those topics that we missed, and do us a solid and go back, uh, download, rate, and review past episodes, or just download them. Don't even have to listen to them.
2: <laughs> We're so desperate. We're so
0: desperate for clicks. Um, no, please do listen and share your thoughts and compliments and uh, recipes, um, washing instructions for uh, woolens and linens. Uh, i will take anything. Any kind of uh, feedback would be much appreciated. I also want to know, is there anybody out there whether they're a guest or a host on this podcast, or out there in the universe, who can name a great makeup in a bad movie? Um,
1: I got some of those. Okay, all
0: right, <laughs> we're going in hot, going in hot to the second round. Um, but I think uh, we'll have to put that suggestion on ice for now, Dan. And we'll go with Richard and Michael's third.
3: All right, so okay. our th- our third one, and Dan, you 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 called us out on it. Look, we're we're just a bunch of Big dumb cavemen when it comes to uh, comes to uh, practical effects. Well, and those were not my words. <laughs> well, I'm I'm, par- is- I'm I'm paraphrasing.
2: It's from the Geico commercials, the Caveman. No, we're kidding. No,
3: absolutely <laughs> not. Um, so, but you you did you mentioned Rick Baker? It would have been almost criminal not to have a Rick Baker uh, piece of work on our in our selection. And I think what he is most iconically known for is American Werewolf in London. Um, just a you know very specifically if we're talking about a specific character, I think the scene that everyone would knows from the movie is the transformation of David from David into a werewolf and just the months, literal months of planning that it took to be able to get that whole scene ready to film. Um, this was something that and I think I think one of the things that I found out, through doing some of the research on this, is just how, how, how much John Landis was a collaborator and someone who really served to give Rick Baker not just inspiration, but direction. And imagine that, a director directing somebody. Um, but really giving sort of guidance and having this vision for how the special effects and the makeup and everything should look like And then giving Rick Baker the ability to run with that, and I would imagine for you working in the industry, having a having a director or whoever you're interfacing with, who is a a collaborator instead of just telling you what to do, that's got to be that's got to be a a, make a big difference in terms of what you're able to create.
1: Absolutely, I mean, if uh, you know, it can go it can go two ways, and in some ways, you might might like it if they come to you and they're like you know we don't have an exact idea here's a couple things just go with it and that can be very freeing and exciting um but then you can get the other side of the coin where they have no idea what they want but they but they definitely know what they don't want but only when they see it so we've (laughs) definitely had to deal with that i won't i won't say what the film was uh but i worked on one film where the main character had a a green face. And it was a very specific color green face. And so the sculpture was done, but you know, the sculpture is done initially in clay, which is not that color green. And the director was kind of like, yeah, I like it, but you know, it's not the right green. We're like, well, no, this is, this is just a sculpture of what the makeup's going to look like for you to approve. And then, you know, we'll, we'll mold it, we'll cast it. It'll be painted that color green. And And he just couldn't understand because it wasn't the right green. Because the clay, so we literally had to mix up that color of green and paint it onto the clay at, for him to be able to understand what he was wow. looking at and make a decision. So that that could be hard, too, when they're like, I'll know it when I see it. Uh, right. So,
3: <laughs> no, I, 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 it, like I said, reading about uh, John Landis and Rick Baker working together, they'd already worked together on a couple of projects before that. Yeah. Um, so they had a, a good working relationship. It just made me appreciate sort of the the role that a director can have, the, the, that when you see, you know, special effects, practical effects, or whatever effects they happen to be, it's not just the work of one person. It is, at, at, at its core, at its best, it truly is a collaborative thing. Yes. Um, yeah. And just it, it, about this movie specifically, you know, I think it was – this movie, in a lot of ways, is made by the makeup. It's a very funny movie in a lot of ways, and it's we did an episode on horror comedies last year, I guess, was that right? Two years so, ago. Right? Yeah. Two years ago. Wow, geez. Um, and I know, I'm pretty sure American Werewolf in London came up. I'm pretty sure that was somebody's pick. So it's a it is in a lot of ways a very funny movie, but in order to get the horror aspect correct this transformation and also the kind of when his friend comes back as the ghost and he's all slashed up you know the the horror aspects needed to be under needed to be reinforced by the kind of the gory nature of the special effects that you're seeing and you know obviously you know some of the things that Rick Baker the innovations that he had to come up with for the transformation scene, for example, are things that were, you know, pneumatics and syringes, you know, changeo heads change heads yeah. yeah. I mean, these are things that I, I would imagine are still being used today.
1: Yeah, I mean, to an extent, they're obviously more sophisticated systems yeah. now, but it was the, that was the beginning of it. Even things like the hair growing out of the skin, they actually did all the hair, and then they pulled the hair out, from behind right. and then ran the film in reverse to make it look like it was growing out. Um, tons of innovation there. And the hardest thing being that up to that point, everything had always been, uh, you know, filmed in low light and just kind of getting the, the uh, an idea of what was going on. And this is a situation where John Lance was like, no, no, no. I want to shoot this in like broad daylight, like well lit room with no cuts. And obviously there was some cuts in there, but to pull something like that off in a brightly lit room, Um, I mean, just, and the, the movie and the effects that launched a thousand makeup effects careers. I mean, you talk to anybody in the industry and they're going to cite that as one of the big influencers as to why they do what they do for a living. They saw that movie and their life was never the same. So.
3: Sure. Absolutely. it's, it's, it. for me, I think it was the first movie that I remember as a kid and my mom probably let me watch this when I was eight. So probably far too young um but i it's one of the first movies where i remember i remember being impressed by the special effects and by the the uh the makeup specifically it's one of the first times where i remember looking at a movie and starting to appreciate sort of the the craft that went on behind the scenes and not just seeing it as oh that looks cool yeah. but actually really appreciating it
0: cool great choice uh so uh, what's your third choice, Dan Crowley?
1: Uh, you know, my third choice, I will go with something classic. I know my first two pictures, are like, God, what a hipster, this guy, <laughs> <laughs> obscure choices. <laughs> um, so I'm going to, I'm to go with, uh, a classic, the precursor to Jack Pierce. Um, we're, I'm going to go with Lon Chaney senior, uh, and his makeup as Eric in Phantom of the Opera from 1925. Oh, Cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, Lon Chaney senior, obviously this was in a day when there wasn't a makeup artist. The actor was the makeup artist. They did their own makeups. Um, and it, this was the, in the silent era of film. So things were still making, uh, movies back then were still very theatrical. And so, because most of those actors had been theater actors and film was a new medium that didn't have sound yet. So, you know, very overly emotive and uh, a little over the top, um, and a lot of his makeups I think brought a little bit of subtlety and realism that hadn't been existing yet. And if you look at some of the characters that he played, um, you know, the Hunchback of Notre Dame and the the Phantom from Phantom of the Opera, you, you wouldn't know it's it's the same two people. You know what I mean? His He was just a real chameleon uh, in his face and what he could do to it. And it was torture because we didn't have prosthetics and things like that back then, foam latex, I don't think was really used for the first time much till about wizard of Oz, which was in 39. Um, so, you know, he was like, there's the old stories of him, like pulling his, pulling his eyelids down with fish hooks and things. And I don't think it was quite that extreme, but you look at his makeup, like in London after midnight and his eyelids are pulled down or, or in Phantom of the Opera, his nose is pushed up and he was literally just like taping his nose up over the top of his head. And then like using collodion and, uh, Uh, wax and cotton and and building these things up and those makeup had to be done from scratch custom every single day they couldn't be just done one time and then reproduced from a mold those were being done from the beginning and Jack Pierce the same way it was all building things up Uh, and I mean you know when you watch that movie that first reveal of the phantom's face when she pulls his mask away Uh, you know, down in the cellar of the the opera house, the organ. I mean, what a horrifying and shocking image. I mean, it's how many t-shirts has that been on? Like how many, like I mean, that's um, without launching senior, I think that uh, you don't have a lot of the great characters uh, from that, from the horror genre. And maybe you don't have guys like Jack Pierce and Rick Baker and Dick Smith, you know, to come uh, out of that. So that's my, uh, that's my third, Less hipster
2: pick. <laughs> my um my dad is like a, a stage actor and quasi retired stage actor. D- nothing famous, nothing important at all. But like,
3: uh, hey, he so was on much... an episode. Hey, wasn't he on an episode of Baywatch?
2: That's right. It's called The Big Spill, where so... he played the the evil polluter, and he got punched out by David Hasselhoff. And my dad had to uh, wear lifts because David Hasselhoff could not talk about special effects and makeup. He had to wear lifts because David Hasselhoff could not be seen punching out someone smaller than him, Uh. but so he had shoe makeup, but um, so (laughs) one of, one of my favorite things to do when I was a kid with my dad was to go to cinema secrets here in the Valley and buy little prosthetics for like Halloween to wear like, you know, like a gash in my face and a cut off arm and all these, you know, fake eyeballs and, you know, have my dad, like apply spirit gum and layer things on my face just for stuff he knew from like doing like stage makeup, but it's just very interesting. Like, you know, and that's obviously grotesque and, um, over the top, but like, I think there's something there about like the individual applying their own makeup and bringing their own knowledge of what works for them into the, into a character that I think is really interesting for, for, for movie makeup too is probably you know obviously less so since it's you know a multi-million dollar production and professional makeup artist but when you had to invent it back in the day and there was no one else to do this um i love the idea of like a stage makeup being brought into and being modified for the big screen like um like lon chaney did you yeah, know yeah. the, the diy
1: Although, aspect is cool yeah but uh Fun fact, Bela Gossi had played Dracula in the stage version before he was Dracula in the film. And in the stage version, he had done his own makeup, you know, for I think a year and a half run. Uh, and when they made the film and Bela Gossi was to reprise his role in the film, he insisted on doing his own makeup and and like kind of threw a fit and almost quit over the fact that uh, he was told Jack Pierce was going to do his makeup for the film. So uh, oh, wow. he, he was mm. one of those guys that came from that time of you do your own makeup. Mm.
0: You know, you, uh, you brought up the fact that, uh, some of the past, uh, makeups, although very rudimentary and, uh, using theatrical techniques that were then adopted for film and modified, uh, even if it's a rudimentary makeup or maybe even a bad makeup, can you, can you give us an example of a bad makeup in a good film or I'm
1: sorry, a good makeup in a bad film? Oh, I, was say, I don't want to say bad makeup on a good film. Uh, <laughs> But I can definitely. I'll give you my. I, I I thought about this one. I have like my top two picks. I would say for great makeups in not great movies. Um, and and both of them, uh, both of them uh, the the parties responsible are uh, Rick Baker and Kazu, who worked alongside Rick Baker for a long time. And those movies are uh, Norbit, and <laughs> the the other one is Click. Oh. Oh. So if you look at Norbit, I mean, obviously more, you know, Eddie Murphy makeups. That's not what I'm talking about. Eddie Murphy in in uh, in Norbit played a character called Mr. Wong, I think it was. He played like this geriatric, like Asian man. And you wouldn't even know it. <laughs> but oh, wow. it's one of the most incredible makeups that you've ever seen. And it goes back to when Eddie Murphy was like in Coming to America. And people didn't realize that the old white Jewish guy was Eddie Murphy. Um, so... Um, Coming to America, I think, is a, a great movie. But, um, but yeah, N- Norbit not a great movie. But that Mr. Wong makeup's incredible. Like, do yourself a favor and check that out. And Click, um, you know, Adam Sandler, Kate Beckinsale, uh, Henry Winkler, they had to take them through, you know, 30 or 40 years. Uh, David Hasselhoff, the aforementioned. <laughs> um, those are some of the most amazing aging makeups I, I've ever seen in of film. And those are that was one of the first times that silicone prosthetics were really I mean, Silicone Press X have been around for a long time before that. But I remember at the time I was working on uh, – actually, another character movie, Makeup. I was working on uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button at the time. And we were doing all these aging makeups. And an issue of Makeup Artist Magazine came out. And it had a feature article on the makeups from Click. And the cover was Henry Winkler in this old age makeup. And we literally you know, were thumbing through it at work. While working on Benjamin Button's doing a bunch of aging makeups, and we literally like, well, we gotta throw everything out and start over because, oh wow, this is this is incredible. Like these are the most incredible makeups we've ever seen. Um, so I just remember being very shocked working on that. And ironically, Benjamin Button ended up winning an Oscar for yep. the the aging makeups in it. But, um, those ones in Click, I mean, and there's even there's even youth makeups in those. They were cut out of the movie, but you look at the the uh, deleted scenes they had to make Henry Winkler and the actress who plays wife look younger. And they did some incredible like youthening makeups, which is really hard to do. You have to like use all these like lifts to like stretch their faces out and then put prosthetics on top. So um, those two movies definitely stand out as gr- great makeups and not great films.
3: All right. So that must've that must been tough to do with Henry Winkler. Cause I know, Everyone in Hollywood knows what an, what an asshole he is. Oh, <laughs> right. Um,
1: but literally, I don't think anyone in the world has a bad thing to say about her. Yeah,
3: no, <laughs> I, I was kidding, bad of bad course. World. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: what is your final choice, Richard and Michael? Uh,
2: our final choice was um, the the Joker from 2008's The Dark Knight, played by Heath Ledger. And what uh, I liked about this choice as opposed to Frankenstein who I talked about earlier was the Joker is a character and a makeup that has constantly changed over the years and uh, his version or the version that was in the dark Knight was so grotesque in comparison to what you'd seen before you know the Joker is this character that is so very um, you know at times very flamboyant and you know you know, depending on who's playing him or how he's portrayed in the comics, cuckoo and kind of silly. You know, the Jack Nicholson character um, was more tuned to how his origin was in the comics and um, with his kind of kind – of his smile that's uh, developed through a chemical reaction and whatever happening. You know, I guess in the original comics, he was um, the red uh, – the red hood and he had like this mask on his head and he pulled it off and fell into a vat of chemicals and his face was disfigured. But the Heath Ledger version in the dark Knight is so visceral and so grotesque and it's grotesque both when he's wearing like kind of the white pancake makeup, but then also like in the scenes where he's not wearing any makeup, He just has this, you know, this scar and I guess they call it a Glasgow smile. And it's so just, It so informs the character as this twitchy disturbed individual that you don't kind of know his origin and it works perfect for the Joker character. I think that's um, I haven't seen the uh, the Joaquin Phoenix Joker version, but like, I hate the idea of knowing the origin of the Joker. And I think that his portrayal of this character and the mystery that comes from the makeup of how he constantly is changing And maybe that's the writing and just the actor's portrayal, but it's constantly changing what you know of the character that's informed by the makeup and him saying like, do you want to know how I got these scars? And I think that's so interesting and they never really explain it and it shouldn't be explained because he's this mysterious, chaotic uh, character. And I just, um, I read something where, I guess he'd put on the makeup and it would bother him so much that he'd kind of have to, he would lick his lips and lick at it. And that developed into a character trait that he brought to it too. Um, I also just want to give like a real quick shout out to like Cesar Romero for just putting <laughs> white pancake makeup over his mustache and not giving a fuck too. And that feels like something that the Joker would do too. But um, But I don't know, just like I, you know, it was so over the top, but kind of believable and grotesque, and really just everything came together, you know, in compare, you know, in that movie. And then mm-hmm. you'd also compare it to the digital work that was done with the uh, with the two face character, oh, and it yeah. was like, oh, here's this character It's even more grotesque, and these two like disfigured people eventually mm-hmm. working together. I don't know. I just thought that the performance aspect and the makeup that drove it. Um, on his many different phases was was very unique for a character that everyone has known mm-hmm. as either the Jack Nicholson version or like a cartoon comic book version or you know even the campy sixties version.
0: Yeah, it seems like an observation that uh, the uh, makeup is part of the character, but the character has a story, and that uh, makeup gave him so much backstory that he could bring into the into the plot to move things forward. Uh, Dan, I have a question for you. Uh, Michael brought up the Two-Face character in the Dark Knight uh, films. And I know there to be many very talented artists who are working in the digital realm, uh, but they are at times displacing artists who are working in the practical uh, physical effects realm. Do you have a observation to make about what one loses when they go to all digital? Is there something that you can shine a light on?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I think a lot of the most successful digital artists are guys who used to be practical artists. There's a lot of guys who used to do makeup effects or practical effects who, uh, you know, smartly went into doing digital effects. And I think that those tend to be the ones who are the best at it because they have a real world grounding in how you actually do things in the real world. So they can then take that artistry over to the computer. Whereas if you exclusively learn uh, within a computer, then I think maybe it loses a little something of life. So, you know, there's guys like Aaron Sims and Eddie Yang who were prolific makeup effects artists, you know, through the eighties and the nineties who went on to be start digital companies. And now, some of the best digital work and a lot of makeup effect shops are now having digital makeup departments in-house but I'm not one of the people who's gonna sit here and say that you know uh, one is better than the other I think that makeup works best when you're using all of the available technologies to complement one another so there are just some things we cannot do in the real world uh, and there are some things that just are not going to look right in the digital world. So if you can use those two things together, I think that's where you get the best effects. Maybe you have a zombie that has a hole in their face or a part of their torso missing. There's no reason why that can't be a makeup with an area of their face or torso that's painted green or blue that's digitally removed or um, some type of hybrid. Um, But I don't think that, uh, I don't think that one, I think they, they need each other in this day and age. Um, I think you, you're going to be a dinosaur and you'd be ignorant to ignore uh, the new technologies you need to embrace digital makeup effects. You need to embrace 3d printing and you need to learn how to use them or you're going to get left behind because that's what happened to Jack Pierce. You know, Jack Pierce refused to embrace prosthetic makeup, which was what was coming in. Uh, he insisted on just doing uh, buildups and like the old cotton and collodion stuff. And he essentially was unceremoniously removed as the head of the universal makeup department. He died in obscurity. His last job's being doing makeup on like Mr. Ed TV show on the horse. I mean, it's uh it was, oh, very, wow. it was a sad ending to somebody who is a legend in the field. So I think you really need to embrace that. And someone like Rick Baker embodies that he's always embraced the new technologies. And now in his retirement continues to do so. Um, so that's my very as you guys are probably figuring out i have very long-winded answers to everything so
0: very informed
2: uh so um, tell one, us one one final note on um the joker and the joker's look i believe was based on conrad veit in the man Correct. who laughs Correct. Uh, and that ultimately comes back to being a jack pierce creation in itself yeah absolutely. so i like how it all um comes full circle full circle
0: that's cool uh uh, before you tell us your last choice for the Matt Rushmore bad, character, want makeups.
1: more good makeups and bad movies? Oh yeah, lay it on me. I also <laughs> well, want to know. I, I did. I did think of two more, and I'll just okay. mention. I won't like. I won't yeah. uh, pontificate. One of them would be uh the Mason Verger makeup in Hannibal. Absolutely incredible. I had no idea that was Gary Oldman until the credits rolled. Oh yeah. That's beautiful, flawless makeup, and then all of the makeups in Dick Tracy. I, I kind of have a soft spot for Dick Tracy because I saw it as a kid. I
2: love but, that movie. But those I love Jack. Uh, Dick Tracy.
1: Yeah, that was John Caglione and Doug Drexler who do those makeups. Talk about characters. I mean, they literally brought these comic strip characters to life and, and beautifully. I mean, those are those makeups are amazing. Movie, eh, you know, I like it. Uh, my choice is share. <laughs> um, that in uh, Mask. Oh, wait, no, that was – she didn't play Rocky Dennis, right? <laughs> no, she wasn't. Uh,
0: what was the first makeup you ever did, Dan, do you
1: recall? Like like just for fun on myself? Or, yeah. Or, I think – you know, I think the first makeup I ever did for fun on myself was uh, I did a, just like a zombie makeup on myself. I, I remember being at a Halloween store when I was eight years old, and I saw this little, they had a little vial of liquid latex, and it had a really cool picture on it of, you know, some – some zombie makeup and I convinced my mom to buy it for me and um went home and like you know put it all over and started like twisting and ripping at my fake skin and stuff and uh I mean there wasn't a question after that from eight years old I knew exactly what I, I was like this is what I'm doing like I'm gonna do this for a living so oh,
0: that's cool yeah all right so what is your final choice for the Matt Rushmore of character makeup
1: all right uh, so my final choice, I've gone with the, the subtle character and aging makeups. So I went with uh, so, a classic choice. My last one's also kind of a classic choice. This is much more monstrous. I'm gonna say the makeup on Tim Curry in Legend, done by Rob O'Teen, as uh, uh, the darkness, the, the, de- the devil makeup from uh, the, from Legend. Uh, oh, cool. That, that make that movie's filled with amazing makeups. So you have Rob Picardo in the Meg Mucklebones makeup. Um, but, I mean, the the darkness makeup on Tim Curry is, um, you know, much like you guys talked about after the Jack Pierce Frankenstein makeup, that was Frankenstein. Um, I feel like after darkness, like, that's the devil. And before, the devil was always, like, you know, red skin, big horns. But um, that makeup is so iconic. That is a makeup that really pushed the envelope. I mean – I can just imagine, uh, you know, Rob being in the room and, and they're looking at the sculpture and they already have these horns that are like, you know, six inches long. Like, no, 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 bigger horns. You know, like, okay, <laughs> these, are, these are two feet long, bigger horns. I mean, those horns are like three feet tall. It's like, it's like a water buffalo. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, just like I love the over the topness, like that really long, long chin, these gigantic I mean, almost like comically-sized horns. He's up on the, the, the leg extensions with the the cloven feet and, uh, I mean, a tail. Like, just everything about that makeup is – it's theatrical, but it's elegant, and it's, it's just done so cleanly and beautifully, and I think that it really changed how makeups were approached and what people thought they could do. I think that Rob Bottin in general with the movies that he did makeups for – you know, push the envelope so much, look at like the thing from, uh, I think it was 82. Like that's not so much makeup as it is animatronics work, but um, you know, I think he really pushed the envelope as far as design and that makeup stands out in my mind is very iconic.
0: I have a question. Do you know if Tim Curry was cast uh, when Rob started expanding the idea of the character? Cause I, I can imagine if you, are concerned about a makeup overwhelming the performer and then somebody says no it's tim curry you like
1: no okay he's probably yeah. going to find a way to make this awesome yeah that's like robin williams like well i don't know he might get lost like no you won't or jim no. carrey like they're not going to get lost in the makeup right
0: yeah yeah, yeah.
1: You need somebody like that over the top to bring out. i don't know i don't know if tim curry i don't know what came first tim Cur- Tur- tim curry or rob's Rob Boutin's design for that
3: mm-hmm.
2: character.
1: Well, I, you know, a lot of that design work was also done by Miles Tevis. So Miles Tevis was um, essentially the, the concept artist. So he's the one who drew out these designs on papers, like here's what they're going to look like. And then, you know, but he worked for Rob Boutin. So much like uh, the Tom Bermans of the world who kind of get lost in the John Chambers uh, 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 shadow, um, a lot of, there's a lot of guys that work in my field who you don't hear about, who are just major, major contributors to these makeups, these iconic makeups, and you only hear kind of about the, the figurehead. So, you know, Miles Tevis definitely had a huge role in the look of all that stuff in legend. Uh,
0: yeah. So yeah, to let us know the unsung heroes. So in order to accomplish a makeup, you need uh, mold makers and- Yeah, start, so and... it
1: starts with a design, uh, which, you know, back in the day was traditionally just drawn, you know, you would draw the design on paper, uh, now, a lot of that design work is, I would say, done digitally in Photoshop, probably. Um, and then um, and then it goes to a sculpture, right? So you're sculpting it in clay. And sometimes that's a, what's called a maquette, which is like a little small, like quarter scale or half scale version of something, almost like a sketch in clay. Uh, or you're sculpting right on the life cast of the person. So you take an impression of the actor and then you start putting clay on there to represent what they're going to look like. That all gets molded. Um, And that's where like a lot of the work happens with the mold making. And then there's parts that are cast up. So whether that be dentures or the prosthetics that they're going to wear on their face or fingernail extensions, uh, all different types. Sometimes it's um, uh, a really thing that people don't discuss is the body transformation, just the things that go underneath their clothes that Winston Churchill makeup you mentioned. I mean, you have to have an entire bodysuit because if you just change somebody's face, You have to change their posture. You have to change their uh, entire silhouette. Um, And that is going to change how they move and how they uh, react and how they carry themselves. So there's a whole side of fabrication that's involved in in getting the body right. And then wigs. I mean, wigs are all done. You're tying one hair at a time onto this lace. Uh, That's wigs and eyebrows and other facial hair like beards and mustaches Um, contact lenses you know you talked about um, an old makeup face but the eyes don't look old if you have the right contact lenses then you can get that nailed down and make the eyes look old as well so um, it's and then the final piece is the makeup artist who applies it and oftentimes the makeup artist who applies it is not even somebody who was in the laboratory making any of the doing any of the actual work Uh, a lot of times they're just the person who glues it on. So it comes to them already painted, already with the hair. They're just gluing it onto the actor, blending it off and just um, you know, putting together the final piece. And a lot of times when it comes time for awards, things like Oscars and Emmys, uh, the awards goes to whoever applied it, you know, whoever essentially glued it onto the face. Um and sometimes those people, to be fair, have a big role in creating that those makeups, but a lot of times they're essentially just Somebody who takes it, you know, takes it to the finish line once I guess the majority of the work's done. But uh, it's a very long, involved process that involves, you know, tens, if not hundreds, of people sometimes on a crew. Well, cool. So this has been a really fun episode, and just in time for Halloween.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh wait,
1: <laughs> early, early. Uh, well, I want to talk about when the when uh, the lockdown will be lifted, just in time yeah. for Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> probably.
0: it will let <laughs> us out, and then a month later, put us back in. So this has been the Mount Rushmore of character makeups in movies, and I want to really uh, applaud Michael and Richard for giving us a a tour. I think it's chronological, actually, through some of the highlights of uh, makeup in the latter part of the 20th century. Frankenstein, uh, the iconic um, visage of him that has become indelibly um, inked in our brains. as created by Jack Pierce. Uh, The John Chambers-led crew from Planet of the Apes and was it Rick Baker, Uh, American Werewolf in London, Uh, 2008's uh, Heath Ledger's Joker. But uh, our buddy Dan Crawley made a clean sweep. Oh, my God, guys, the guest wins again, especially when they're an experienced expert in the
1: field.
3: We're the Washington uh, generals. Generals,
1: (laughs) you totally are. (laughs) Of podcasts. You guys' choices were perfect. I mean, that's why I – I stayed away from a lot of the choices because the choices you guys made are literally all of the choices I would have made with the exception of Joker, which by the way is an excellent, excellent choice. I w I didn't even think of that. I have this list in my hand of like about 20 more makeups that I haven't even mentioned, uh, trying to narrow things down and Joker's not even on there. And that is a great pick because you're absolutely right. Like that, that was, that changed the game as far as, uh, and what a simple, you know, what a simple makeup that uh you know is i mean that is the joker now you know it's
2: interesting because i like that it was like a makeup upon a makeup because like you he had like the facial scar makeup but then he had like the traditional chaotic joker makeup on top of that so there's like a performance within a performance and
1: how do you that that movie was incredible how do you erase in people's mind jack nicholson as the joker you know but he did it you know what i mean so incredible yeah great choice great choice uh dan's
0: choices are going to be etched up on the mount rushmore of the uh, character makeups and films that's max von Sydow in the exorcist uh martin landau as bella lugosi and ed wood and lon Cheney senior uh specifically kind of quoting the phantom from the silent era and tim curry in legend so uh Dan, uh, any honorable mentions you want to get in before we wrap up the show? In
1: terms yeah, of the absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I I, um, I got to go with the other the classic monsters uh, the Gill Man from The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr. That was another uh, Jack Pierce makeup. Um, Tony, uh, Tony Curtis uh, as Dr. Lau. That uh, was a William Tuttleman oh, in sure. Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. Um, Mac Shrek as Nosferatu. Uh, some Maury Cider makeup from Citizen Kane. Um, definitely Ooh. iconic. The stuff from Wizard of Oz, um, Mr. Hyde. Um, and then I guess more modern stuff. I mentioned coming to America, Amadeus. I got to give Amadeus a shout out. That makeup was another Dick Smith iconic makeup. Um, the Brundlefly by Chris oh, Waylith. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a really good one. Um, little big man, uh, Little Big Man was a oh a, a, the
3: Dustin Hoffman movie. Dustin Hoffman was, yeah. that was
1: another Dick Smith. Um, the Hunger, uh, the makeup from there was also Dick Smith. Uh, Elephant Man, that was a Chris Tucker makeup. That was a great one. And then some couple, the last few are more contemporary. Pan's Labyrinth, the fawn from Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. All the Gary Oldman Dracula makeups. Um, and then uh, I'll throw in a fun one. How about how about Beetlejuice and Hellboy? Oh, right on. Yeah. So cool. Uh, you're like, all right, shut up, man. I <laughs> love it.
0: No, it's this is a, you're giving people an education, and these are breadcrumbs to go back and observe. And Freddy uh, Krueger.
1: You know what? <laughs> I know it's funny and silly, but how iconic is that makeup? Everybody knows who that is. That's everyone exactly knows-
0: what my wife said. Are you going to say Freddy Krueger? That's
1: what she said. That sure That's doesn't. a pretty iconic makeup. That's a pretty iconic makeup.
2: Yeah. I would like to point out uh, uh, Jennifer Coolridge as Sherry Ann Cabot in the movie Best in Show. She really did a nice Sophia Loren cat eye. Um, oh. um, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. That movie's, she looked like Miss Piggy, which I think was the best part about that movie.
0: <laughs> okay, this has been the Mount Rushmore of uh, movie character makeups. I, as always, am Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. And
3: I'm
1: <laughs>